0: Go ahead and have a seat. It's great to see you all. And I see a lot of dads here today, so a very happy Father's Day to you gentlemen. And um, for all of us that have a, a dad, well, a, a godly dad especially, wow, what a, what a day to thank God for godly fathers. Because, you know, not a lot of kids come to Christ if they don't have a godly dad, and so if you have a godly dad, then uh, you thank the Lord for that godly dad that you have. It's a wonderful thing. I love celebrating Mother's Day and Father's Day because, you know, we have a heavenly father, and that's the relationship that we have with him. One of the names for him in the scriptures is Abba, which means daddy, and that's the kind of intimacy we enjoy, and he's powerful and magnificent and awesome, but he's also meek and humble and gentle with us as well. So, wonderful, wonderful thing. We, we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter five, but I thought, well, it's Father's Day. So I thought, I mean, we'd do something special, to try to think about what we could look at, and so I figured we'd go with 1 Corinthians chapter six this morning, so turn with me there. Great text for dads, I think. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm so creative like that, that's just how I am. So the church in Corinth has got a lot of problems, right? Of all the churches that the Apostle Paul was dealing with, Corinth seemed to have been giving him the biggest problems. But I think principally, if we were to sort of categorically sum up what these problems are, we might say that they have to do with the church's testimony, the church's witness within the community, right? Because they had divisions within the body. It makes us look like we're not united as a church. There was, as we saw in chapter 5, sexual immorality. And it said, as was not even reported among the Gentiles. In other words, that even the Gentiles didn't participate in that kind of behavior. That a man had his father's wife. So incest was going on in the church. And the community wasn't even approving of it, but they all knew about it. The King James says it is commonly reported. So it was common knowledge. In other words, the city was buzzing about this. And now we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And what we're seeing that's happening in the church is that people are suing one another within the body of Christ. Again, not a good thing as far as testimony goes. Now, Greece, in that day where Corinth was, was known for frivolous lawsuits. People were taking people to court for any and just about everything. Several ancient writers said that every Athenian, to some extent, was a lawyer. It was a part of their culture. They enjoyed it. They enjoyed the challenge. Um, In some ways, they looked at it as a form of entertainment because they could go down and watch an argument take place between two attorneys. Well, that's not so foreign to our culture today. Seems like every one of the major headlines of the news of the day includes a high-profile court case going on in America right now. In fact, we have our own channel. We have Court TV today. You can watch it all day long if you want to. And I mean, how many of you didn't watch at least some of the OJ trial back in the day? And the simple fact that you know who I'm talking about when I say things like Judge Wapner and Judge Judy, and I'll throw out another one, maybe some of you will get this one, William B. Keene. He was the star of Divorce Court back in the day. Shame to say, as a child growing up, it's one of my favorite shows on TV. My first ministry was I was a married couples pastor, but I loved divorce court growing up, so go figure. (laughs) Our culture is not really that much different. We're sort of a sue-happy kind of culture. There are millions of lawsuits. I heard one statistic the other day that there is a lawsuit for each 12 people in America every year. One out of every 12 is involved in a lawsuit. There are more lawsuits per capita in the United States of America than any other country in the world. And there are more lawyers per capita in the United States than any other country in the world. In fact, I'm not going to tell any lawyer jokes this morning. But I will say one thing that I am disappointed about is that for some reason we decided now that we're going to advertise for lawsuits. Have you noticed that? you would be sitting at home on TV and some commercial comes on and it's like, hey, are you suffering from these symptoms? And have you ever worked in this kind of an environment? You might be entitled to a settlement. You know, we advertise to try to find lawsuits today. And that is part of the problem. The media doesn't help things. We all probably remember some, what, 15, 17 years ago that A woman won a $2.86 million lawsuit from McDonald's by spilling a cup of hot coffee on herself. Well, maybe you're not so shocked because we live in this kind of a culture to hear that within the culture of Corinth that they had a lawsuit-happy kind of environment. But it was a shock for the Apostle Paul to find out that it was happening within the body of Christ. What's interesting really even more so about that is that the Jewish religious teachers of the day actually taught that to go to secular court was like blaspheming God because it was like telling the secular world that God doesn't have answers to our problems. And the Roman and Greek world in that day accommodated the Jews in that. They allowed them to settle their own differences internally. In fact, even in the case of Jesus Christ, Rome was occupying Israel at the time, but the only uh, thing they were stripped of was the right of capital punishment. That's why they had to bring uh, Pilate into the mix. Other than that, they could have done whatever they wanted. They gave the Jews the right to execute their own discipline, short of, of course, capital punishment. And that same right was translated over to Christianity, too. Because the Roman world saw Christianity as just another sect of Judaism. In their minds, that's what Christianity was. And so they allowed the same rights to Christians as they did to Jews. Again, that they could decide for themselves how to settle matters within them. And so that just makes it that much more frustrating for the Apostle Paul when he finds out that this is what's happening here in the church. Verse 1, chapter 6, he says, Dare any of you, kind of like saying, how dare you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous. And the word unrighteous there means unjust. So you're taking someone to justice who is unjust. In the sense, though, the word means not justified, not a believer. It says, having a matter against another to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. In other words, instead, why not go before the saints? So this scenario here really would be a shocker for the Apostle Paul because, well, here are Christians, their brother and sister in Jesus Christ, And his thought is, well, the whole principle behind the Christian community ought to be love and forgiveness. Our relationship with God began at the cross of forgiveness. His love poured out upon the cross and his forgiveness of our sins. And yet, as Christians, sometimes we're the ones who are not as loving or forgiving of one another as we ought to be. But not only that, if you peek down at verse 8, but we're not going to go there yet, But you'll notice the word cheat and wrongdoing there as Paul is not just addressing believers, suing believers, but he's addressing frivolous lawsuits, like not legitimate, cheating each other, just trying to rip each other off, trying to win a buck from someone. And perhaps worst of all, and kind of where we're going to be this morning thematically here, is he says they're doing all of this before the unrighteous. That's the real problem here. Instead of just settling the issue amongst ourselves, we've got to take this to the people's court instead and have it on television or have all of the community come to watch it happen. Now, last week we talked a little bit about our Lord Jesus' instructions about how to settle these kinds of issues within the body of Christ from Matthew chapter 18. There's a progression that we're to honor in terms of how to handle these kinds of scenarios. Because there are problems that happen in a church. And you know what, let me just stop there for just a second and remind you of that. Because it happens every so often that a person stumbles away from the church because they heard of a problem in the church. Don't ever let that happen to you. Because wherever you go, there are going to be problems in churches. Because there are people and people are of the flesh. And they make mistakes. So don't be shocked and surprised if you find out that ever there's a problem. Because there are no churches that are totally inept from problems coming up every now and again. You know, you could hire someone to do some work for you. Maybe you've had this happen before. You know, you have a mechanic. You're like, oh, my car is bad. And you take it to a Christian mechanic and they quote you a thousand bucks. And you're like, ah, that seems like a lot. You go down the road and a non-Christian mechanic quotes you for less price and there's a little bit of friction there. Or you hire a contractor, and you agree to a set amount, and then halfway tr- through, the contractor says, oh, well, it's going to be a little bit more. And then there's a little issue about that, and we're trying to be fair, but sometimes we don't see each other's perspective and that kind of thing, and that's basically what Paul's talking about here. Actually, uh, this uh, happened to me um, on a personal note uh, this past year. Uh, it's kind of joking a little bit. But uh, maybe you know or may not know that our worship leader and his wife, they own a little fish market here in town. And uh, I was in one day, just stopped in to buy a piece of salmon for myself. And uh, uh, Pastor Mike was there at the cash register, was giving me the pastor discount, which none of you get, by the way. I wanna make sure because Sharon would be mad if she thought you knew. You actually have to pay more than the rest of the community. No, I'm just kidding. But he's trying to apply some kind of a discount, so the piece of fish was only gonna be eight bucks, but it ended up being 80 bucks. So the pastor discount's not all that it's cracked up to be, actually. So I got the receipt, and I went in the car and didn't even realize that I'd been charged 80 bucks, and I looked at it and went, whoa, $80, what do I do? I was kind of nervous, you know, because I confront him, do I talk to him, do I just let it go in or whatever? So I sued him, I took him to court, you know. Now, here's what the Bible says, okay? The Bible says that if you're wronged, right, that the first thing that we do, step one, is we go to that brother or sister one-on-one privately. That's the ideal scenario. And hopefully we're able to solve it one-on-one, okay? Then step two, the Lord Jesus said, but if he will not hear you, then bring back with you one or two witnesses to confront that brother or sister on That level, so we're kind of escalating it a little bit, but without publicizing it so much. But then he said, step three, if he still will not hear from those witnesses, then take it to the church, take it to the church leadership. Okay, And then of course, if he still won't hear, then you put him out of the church. But the principle behind this is that we ought to be able to solve these problems within the family keep it in the family. We ought not to be airing our dirty laundry for the community because it's not a good witness. It's not a good testimony. We ought to be loving and forgiving of one another, especially when you consider God's high calling for our lives and his high calling for our futures as well. Take a look at verse two. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, Are you unworthy to judge the smallest manners? So he says, so look, if someday you're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ, judging the world, then how is it that you cannot solve these small trivial matters within the body of Christ? A few bucks someone owes you, so to speak. Now, I think this is an interesting passage. And. Again, I want to be careful always with these things, not to get anybody wound up and let's not get all bent out of shape because I know not everybody agrees on these kinds of things. But I think when you look at this here, this is a pretty good reference here to the the Lord. He's going to have a a return someday, his second coming, and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. The Bible teaches there's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign. And there are some people who don't agree with that and don't interpret the scriptures that way. And I acknowledge that, but I would just ask them to consider, if you're one of those people this morning, it's fine. I'd ask you to consider, though, here, if you think that much of the book of Revelation is to be considered symbolically and not literally, I would ask you to consider here when the world has ever been judged by the saints, as it says here, even figuratively speaking. It's never happened. So I think this is definitely pointing to a future date and time in which it will, which the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation. Not only that, look at verse 3. He says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Same thing. When did that happen, even symbolically speaking? Sometime in history. No, it's going to be sometime in the future. Now, people ask me, and they say, well, is this talking about like us judging, like playing a role with Christ and judging the fallen angels or is this talking about, you know, being in heaven someday? And you know, the angels are called ministering saints, and they minister alongside and for us, and we're going to be ruling with Christ, and that word judge there could also mean reign there. So does it mean that we're going to have a role in, in them serving us in the heavenly realm? And the answer to that question is, I have no idea. But it doesn't really make any difference. I think the point of the matter is is that this has not happened in history yet. This is going to happen at some point. In fact, look at the end of verse 3 where it says, how much more things that pertain to this life. So notice the differentiation there. Okay, follow me on this. Notice the differentiation between what shall happen, we shall judge the world, we shall judge angels, versus the things that pertain to this life. Okay, so enough said on that point. The most important takeaway from this is, what Paul is saying is, considering the high calling that it is to be a saint of God, that we're going to be judging the earth, that we're going to be judging angels, and how is it that we can't solve some of these, quote, matters, these small issues that come up within the body of Christ? Because in Paul's mind, an unbelieving secular judge is less qualified to make judgments within this church family here than any of the believers in this church family are. Look what he says. Verse 4, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Now I want to make sure you understand that Paul is not putting down the legal system within a society. We know that because we studied Romans chapter 13, where he taught us that we are to submit to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. So we're not talking about an instance that would come up that would require the judicial process. When a crime is committed, and it's possible that someone has to do jail time, obviously we cannot solve that kind of an issue here within the body of Christ. But his point is, when we have these small kind of disagreements, discrepancies over a couple bucks here and there, He's saying, why would you go to a secular judge who, for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, don't judge by the word of God? And for the most part, don't have the discernment of the Holy Spirit of God? Why use the world system for solving problems when you have a better system, which is keeping it in the family? So he kind of says this kind of harshly, verse 5, I say this to your shame, it is so, That there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Again, shame on you. Are you kidding me that there's not one among you that's wise enough? Now you got to remember, just a couple chapters back, remember that he was kind of almost mocking them because they were so wise in their own eyes. And in chapter 1, indeed, he said that they were very gifted, He said they lacked nothing in all utterance and all knowledge that God had gifted this church body. They professed to be so wise, and yet now Paul's saying there's not a single one of you within the body that is wise enough to handle these things within the church so that they don't take to the streets and become a bad witness, that they tarnish our testimony. So he says, I say this to your shame. But brother, verse six, goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. I wanted to quote verses five and six from a modern translation. I typically don't quote those modern translations because um, they're more of a commentary than they are a word for word or a thought for thought translation. Uh, on the verses, but I think it really sort of sums up Paul's point pretty well here. It goes like this. It says, I say this as bluntly as I can to wake you up to the stupidity of what you're doing. Is it possible that there isn't one level-headed person among you who can make fair decisions when disagreements and disputes come up? I don't believe it. And here you are taking each other to court before people who don't even believe in God how can they render justice if they don't believe in the God of justice? So in other words, first of all, it's bad enough that you're taking people to secular court within your church body, and you prefer a secular court for that kind of thing. It's bad enough that we're doing that in front of, for the most part, unbelieving judges that don't know God, that don't know the Word of God, that don't judge by the discernment of the Holy Spirit of God. But then secondly, and probably more importantly, it gets back to kind of where we began this morning, which is he's really concerned about their testimony. You can almost hear it off the page there when he says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Seriously? Are you going to take them to court before unbelievers? You remember the People's Court? You remember that show? Dun-dun-dun. And someone would walk down the aisle, and it'd be like, and here's the plaintiff, Pastor Joe Shue, you know. He's suing Mike Hadley for $80 for a piece of salmon. I mean, how ludicrous would that be, and how that would tarnish the church body, tarnish the community of believers, and tarnish the name of Christians as a whole. Now, it's especially troubling, I think, when you consider the origin of the whole jury uh, as a whole. Because a lot of historians believe that we get what we have today as a jury from the Greeks um, at that time. They were the originators of the jury system. Now we have a jury today, it's comprised of 12 people. But in their day, sometimes a jury would be comprised of as many as 500 people. So now you're really letting the community in on this, right? And because it was a source of entertainment, they didn't have a lot of movie theaters back then, they didn't have court TV, so they would go down to the local court to watch a good trial because that would be entertainment for them. Well, what are they, inter- what are they being entertained by? By two Christians arguing. By two Christians arguing amongst themselves over something silly. And if what Jesus said was true, and it was, that they, the world, will know us by the love that we have for one another? I don't see how they could possibly have seen the love in that church body in Corinth if they were seeing lawsuit after lawsuit being brought, believer against believer, being pitted against each other. Now, you might think well, what does this have to do with us? I mean, we're not taking each other to court here in this church body. And for the most part, you don't hear about a lot of Christians taking Christians to court. Very few instances in which you hear that. You may know of an instance, but there are very few instances of that. But I will say on a different level, we are guilty of something very similar, which is merely just that point before, which is that we air our dirty laundry before the public. We argue amongst ourselves publicly publicly. On the internet, on Facebook, with books that are written, where Christians are arguing with Christians over trivial points, points that are not essential to the faith. What's essential to the faith? You're a sinner. God, Heavenly Father, sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins. And he rose again on the third day. And by believing in that sacrifice on the cross, by grace, through faith, we are saved unto everlasting life. Correct? Okay, that's the essential of Christianity. But you get all kinds of Christians arguing about all of these other side issues, and what the world says when they look at it is, you guys can't even agree with each other. When for the most part, we actually do. But we model for them that we don't. And so it is a stumbling block for unbelievers who don't see a church united. Now, therefore, verse 7, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. So someone might say, but Paul, I won the case. The judge sided with me. I got my money because he did damage my lawnmower or whatever the case may be. But Paul would say, no, it's an utter failure either way. Not a single material thing. No amount of material wealth is worth a testimony, is worth giving Jesus a black eye over, is worth um, allowing the community to think that as Christians we don't love each other and that we can't get along and we can't deal with our things in-house, so to speak, without having to go to a secular court, So it's so vitally important that we understand that our witness and our testimony, you look at this next part here, and you talk about hitting you right between the eyes. I tell you, I told the first service, you go home, you go to Kinko's or whatever, and you make 50 copies of this, and you put it up all over your house and highlight it in pink or whatever, Because you and I all know this is a struggle for us. But this is really the heart. I don't care if you get anything else out of what I said this morning. Make sure you get this. What does he say there? He says, why do you not rather accept wrong? For the life of me, it is so hard to do sometimes. I am not good at that. I know, I know, it seems like every week I'm up here like bearing my soul, confessing my sins. But really, this one is absolutely a struggle for me in my life. Ask the people who know me best, and they'll tell you. And I give you freedom and permission to tell them, you that are close to me. Tell them, tell them. It's hard to admit you're wrong. It's hard. But you know what? It's such a great way to diffuse a situation it's the best way in the world to diffuse a situation. Why can't I get that through my thick head? You ever had it reverse done to you, where you had all the points lined up and you were in the right, and you're like, you know, I got something to say, and I got this, and I got that, and they interrupt you, you go, you know what, you're, you're so right, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? And you're like, well, I wasn't done yet, I have more to say. It just diffuses the whole situation. When someone just says, I'm sorry, I, you're right. You're right. Forgive me. Why not just rather accept wrong? Well, if my father was here today, you know, you see him at some point this summer. That's what he would say. He would say even to this day, Joe's never wrong. (laughs) Big John's laughing at me. (laughs) Joe's never wrong. Something I got to learn. And maybe you do too. And maybe today's a good day to learn that. Maybe there are some people here... Your relationship with your dad's not what it should be, and maybe you ought to just accept wrong to restore that relationship, or maybe you're the dad, and your relationship with your son or daughter isn't what it should be. I know easy for me to say right because I'm up here, but Paul says it. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather? He says, "Let yourselves be cheated." Now, who cares? it's a couple bucks, let it go. Stop keeping a ledger. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? 70 times seven. How much is that? 490. So if we're at 489, then, well, you're right on the brink there, no. And Jesus was saying, you just keep forgiving over and over, you don't keep a ledger. Verse eight, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat And you do these things to your brethren. Oh, it's bad enough that he uses the word cheat. Like this is not, again, legitimate lawsuits where criminal activity is being involved and someone needs to be brought to justice. But look what he says. You're doing it to your brethren. Now, I want to make it clear, though, that Paul is not condemning, I think, the legitimate use for Christians of the legal system when it is necessary for the laws of the land to be properly applied. So are we allowed to sue um, an unbeliever? Yes, we are, the Bible doesn't address that here. And is there ever an instance in which we would be brought into a lawsuit with a believer? Well, there are some instances, Um, and you know, like, God forbid, but a divorce is one of those instances in which those happen. God hates divorce, we know, but if you're brought into that situation, there's no hope for mediation. There's nothing you can do. You can't just not go to trial. So I understand there's some things along those lines. And actually, Jesus, in finishing the thought in Matthew 18, gave us another scenario. He said that after you take those three steps, so you go to the brother one-on-one, that's step one. Number two, you bring one or two witnesses with you, that's step two. Step three, you bring the leadership of the church, and then if he won't hear from any of that, okay, then he said this, quote, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And you can take a heathen to court. So then if you have to, if you have to, then you can use a legal system for those purposes. But here's what I would say this morning for our purposes. I would say that as Christians, we should err on the side of why would you not rather accept wrong? Why not rather just say, it's no big deal, if you can do that? And the reason why is because it's hard for us to forgive. We're not very good at forgiving. It's not exactly your first impulse when you're wronged. It's not your second, your third, or your fourth impulse when you're wrong to forgive. It's a hard thing to do, but it is a tremendous overarching principle for us this morning. Because think about the Lord Jesus, right? On that cross. When they were, you know, blaspheming him, they were spitting at him and cursing at him and shaking their fist at him. And he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He could have said something like, hey, I'm going to be back in three days. And I know where you all live. But he said, forgive them for they know not what you do. Even an unbeliever a long time ago, the unbelieving philosopher said it. Plato once said, the really good man will always choose to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. How is it that the unbelieving philosopher would be correcting us this morning? We need this correction sometimes. Because, probably, if you're anything, if you're just a little bit like me in this sense, then we need to improve in this area. We need to be more forgiving, quicker to forgive. That's what love is about. That's how we establish our relationship with Christ. He did it first. He loved us first while we were sinners. Sin is to rebel from God. And He loved us by sending His Son on the cross. Romans uh, chapter 12 says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as depends on you, sometimes it's out of your control, but as it is possible for you, then to do that, to live peaceably with everyone. So I I would encourage you today as I exhort myself along these lines. I can tell you that in my own life, although this is a weakness of mine, I'm so thankful for the, for the few times in my life that God gave me the strength to take blame, it sometimes saved a relationship. And you tell me if you don't have that same testimony, where you didn't fall on your sword and say, no, you know what, I blew it, even when it wasn't all your fault or even mostly your fault, that it didn't save a very important relationship in your life. You that are married, you have to do this all the time, don't you? You have to do it all the time. And every relationship that we're in, it's a great overarching principle for us to take away from here. Lord, help us not to have to be right all the time. Allow your grace to reign in any situation. Rather, just accept wrong and be okay with that.